All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of this story we're doing today called This is the Black Economy with Catherine Fitz. And in part one, Catherine, you, you shared with us your personal story, how you experienced firsthand these tentacles, these channels into this huge black hole, basically that we... We're going to explore a little more in depth in this part. And uh, like I told you off air, I have, I'm going to hit you with a lot of facts and figures okay. <laughs> and see if you can make, make sense of them. Okay. Because I think, I think it's important for the folks out there to grasp the reality of this, to, to get actual numbers, yeah. even though these numbers are so high that I, for one, become dizzy, and and we don't really r realize what's behind those high numbers in practical terms. It's like eternity, right? It's a concept we know about, but we don't really understand. Right. Yeah, and that's that's kind of how I interpretate this. Right. If we go all the way back to forty-five after the war, and I do think the military-industrial complex for real started to get serious, especially in 47 and onwards. But right. we see that the chap who basically took over the Nazi ship, the exile Reich, was Martin Bormann. And I don't know if you know about this concrete figure, but it's estimated that he had $300 trillion dollars Back in 1945, he started with that and 750 corporations. And I don't know about you, Catherine, mm -hmm. but I can assure you I have no head for economics. But if I had 300 trillion back then, <laughs> I'd be the puppet master of the world today. <laughs> right. But I think that sounds a little high. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. I, j I, I wouldn't necessarily believe that number. Maybe it was billion then? Well, Could I, that be more real? Yeah. 300 billion is is more real mm. for and remember we're adjusting down for inflation so it's yeah the equivalent of 300 billion then is a tremendous amount of money today but uh, and many multiples of that today just from inflation but um there's no doubt that the nazis laundered out of germany a great deal of money and i would say this, not just germany mind you the whole of europe yeah so so well but if you look at the seizures of assets by the allies or the nazis and what was captured and then kept covert mm. it was an extraordinary windfall and you know i the way i describe it is the nazis were just folded back into the meta structure yeah and there's no doubt the meta structure made a fortune on world war ii it was a highly profitable endeavor. Yeah. And we've been taught in school about the Marshall helps and stuff. But what I didn't say is that everybody had to pay back this money. Right. <laughs> so not only was Europe looted, and that money was whitewashed. Uh, among else, actually, one of the channels was through Dulles 
company. What's it called again? Um, Through Dulles's operation. Yeah, Sullivan well, and Cromwell, Cromwell, right? Cromwell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a law firm. It's not a company. Right, right. So, but they were contributing to the um, laundry, and uh, so, so not only did I loot Europe, and you know, not just Europe, the rest of the world, everywhere they had access. But then, I, then Americans. Wall Street and City of London, they even reclaimed the bill from right <laughs> from, that we we got back. So the money went back forth, back forth, <laughs> and that was back then. Right. And I want to fast forward because we've covered a time period basically from forty five and up to well, at least up to Kennedy. But I want to start with you. I want to start. Can I just make one point? Sure. Shoot. Because remember, the Bretton Woods system that the U.S. set up coming towards the end of the war Mm -hmm. basically put the U.S. military managing the sea lanes, you know, so the global cop. But what, what that system said is in exchange for that role, the U.S. could print money out of thin air. Now, they had a partial gold standard for some period of time, but then cut it. But essentially, since that point on, they could print money out of thin air and exchange it for valuable resources all around the world. When was this? Uh, to- coming towards the end of the Bretton Woods system. So the ability to to run and steadily inflate a global reserve currency mm. was one of the great plums of coming out of winning World War II. So you were able to finally organize and set up the federal credit mechanism as a harvesting machinery that was the most powerful financial mechanism and the most profitable ever created. Right. Um, Were everyone on board with the dollar already back then? Uh, I wouldn't say everyone, but most everyone. So the dollar was the reserve currency. And the power of that has grown and grown. And and it's an incredible talk about, does the metastructure have 300 trillion from that? Probably. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but let's take a short detour on that tangent. What if people uh, go over to an alternative currency now, like one is thinking that the, the um, BRICS countries and that? What is, what will happen if uh, more and more countries do that? Will that crash the economy, or only America, or, or what will be the consequences? Um- it, it depends on how it's organized. If you look at the what I, I'll call the metastructure, if you look at how much has been pulled out of the economies, whether it's using the reserve currency system or other mechanisms, they can position themselves for that rebalancing in a way that they just make more money. So it's not necessarily, you know, it's bad for the United States, but it's not necessarily, it's good for the metastructure. Yeah. Uh, but if there was to be, a, let's see, say, a world world crack, like a real crack, like a reboot, wouldn't that take all the power out of their hands? No. How will they come on top of that pile? Not at all. It depends on if if you look at the total weaponry available and the, um, you know, so so let's say we have one group that has complete control in terms of space weaponry Mm -hmm. it doesn't at the end of the day they're going to control the reboot if they want to yeah i agree about that in in practical terms right control comes from physical control and of course we've seen 
warfare migrating out of physical warfare into digital or invisible kinds of warfare or mind control, et cetera, et cetera. So it's migrating to the non-physical or to look like it's non-physical, but ultimately control comes. Um, the, the reason they call it central banking warfare model is because the power to kill with impunity is what delivers you the financial power. Yeah, but then they have to take the gloves off and come out of this closet and, and really show their face. Let's say, let's say more and more countries, we, we see a trend now that more and more countries go nationalistic. And that doesn't have to mean right-wing extremism like Nazism. I mean, there's even socialist, left-wing, nationalistic movements in the world. So let's say that in different ways, different countries become more and more nationalistic and they reclaim their currency and they back it up with, let's say, gold or other kind of hard measurements. Will that threaten their hegemony? Yes. So let's look at what's happening. The leadership has been trying to run the economy on a rules-based system instead of a market-based system. And they've been doing it in a way that centralized, and they use the government credit and federal credit to centralize control. And so what happens if you are operating in a local economy or you have a small business, your productivity is being destroyed and your economics are being destroyed, not in a way that creates wealth, or, or because somebody's more productive than you are in the marketplace and is out competing you, you're just being engineered out of business so the top guys can have everything in control. So basically your objection is not against, you know, it sounds like we're for nationalism. What we're for is productivity. So we're looking to be productive. We're looking for things to make economic sense and to work. And we're pushing back against that. So I see this really as a war between centralization and decentralization. Yes, exactly. Autonomy versus right. uh, tyranny, basically. Right. Because the question is, are we going to, is each human going to have sovereignty as an individual, as a human? Mm. And are we going to be a human civilization? And are the rights of individual humans going to be respected? And are the obligations of individual humans going to be met? So it's it's really comes down to the individual and I think you can call it many names but but individuals are trying to have their productivity ruined by a wide variety of strategies because they're being harvested they're being harvested spiritually psychically financially blah 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 and they're pushing back yeah yeah, because the globalism going on, it's really a false. It, it's not true internationalism. It's not like Ron Paul's vision of, you know, peace, prosperity, trade, right? Not right. isolationism, like maybe we could say it's more the direction Trump pretended he wanted to go, but more non-interventionalism, which I think will bring the world closer together, but not in the globalism, centralism, authority way, but more in an autonomic, decentralized, like like many living cells yeah. in an organism, like, like the market was meant to be. Right. So... What I, people say that markets are 
a problem. And I would say, how, how would you know we haven't tried them yet? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people also forget that market power really means democratic power. Right. But they are conditioned to think that this corpocracy we're living in, this crony capitalism, is market-based economy. But that's <laughs> no. It's not. <laughs> it is. This is not a market-based economy. This is a very highly managed, very bureaucratic economy. And um, I can give you lots of different examples, but certainly the U.S. economy is very, very socialized with the federal credit and federal spending and, and federal regulation. And it's ex exceptionally destructive to both the environment and all living things are being harmed by it. Yeah. So it's it's an amazingly destructive economy. But whatever it is, it's not a market. No, that's true. Um, most people, when they hear the black economy, they maybe they imagine like a painter who's not paying tax and stuff, uh, or they imagine the mafia and the drugs, which of course is a part of it. But I want to go through with you uh -huh. a few numbers that kind of shows how huge sums of money are being pumped out of our productivity. Okay. So they pump this out and... The more money is being pumped out, the more it inflates, actually, the less value our work and our productivity and the money we have become. So I, I think it's important for people to understand. So let's rewind back to, we could probably go further back, but the numbers I've digged up, at least, uh, begins with the famous right before 9-11. I think it's a matter of days. Right. Yeah. Donald Rumsfeld, that bastard neocon, <laughs> he sits in the Congress and is trying to account for, I've seen different figures, but at least $2.3 trillion are allegedly lost. Uh -huh. Now, of course, nobody understands how they can lose $2.3 trillion when the budget isn't even a trillion a year. <laughs> Somebody. Well, let's, let's, yeah? So you're you're bringing up the missing money. Let's yeah. let me give you the history. And if you come to my Soleri.com and you put in a link, for, uh, search for financial coup d'état or missing money, you can find lots of documentation. Cool. But I was part of a group of people in the first Bush administration who got laws passed requiring audited financial statements. Mm -hmm. And a process began in the mid-90s where the government announced regularly every year that they weren't going to produce audited official statements as required by law. But one of the things that was forced by that process is they started to disclose the quote-unquote undocumentable adjustments. Hmm. So let me describe what an undocumentable adjustment is. Let's say you say let you have a bank account and uh, your bank account says your your check register where you keep a, a tally of what's in your bank says that you have a thousand dollars and you get a statement from your bank and it says you only have 500 and you can't figure out where the 500 right you just you just write an entry that says undocumentable adjustments 500 and then your checkbook balances with your bank statement mm. Okay, that's an undocumentable adjustment because you can't identify where the money went. Okay, so you you can't. But, but I I do know they're gone, right? Because I see that it's not thousand anymore; it's five hundred. Right, right. So. But I can't prove it, right? That's the point. Well, if we could see, remember, if we had all this, I'm talking about a situation where you get the statement 
um, we're talking about a situation where there are covert statements as well. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm oversimplifying just to so you can understand conceptually Good. that what I'm describing is an accounting phrase. It's not necessarily a certification from the bank that $500 is missing. Oh, okay. Mm. okay. So because the question is, if a trillion dollars in, in undocumentable adjustments go missing one year, how much cash credit went missing? That's the question we all want to know. Anyway, so what happened was the process began, and in the summer of, uh, or the spring of, two th- of 1997, I was meeting with some pension fund advisors. I believe I told you the story earlier in the discussion, and one of them said, um, uh, it's too late, we're moving all the money out of the country starting in the fall. And that fall was the beginning of fiscal 1998. And what started to happen was large amounts of undocumentable adjustments started to go missing, both at HUD and DOD. And there was one year when there was a great deal missing at NASA. Mm. So, uh, but DOD two years in a row had 1.1 trillion missing. And then the following year, 2.3 trillion. So as of Rumsfeld testimony, they were in fact missing 3.3 trillion. And he only spoke about the 2.3 trillion. Now, so then there was a real effort to put that in the mainstream news. And in fact, uh, what happened is that effort was sort of suppressed as a result of 9-11. Yeah. And despite the fact that Rumsfeld was trying to explain how DOD was missing 2.3 trillion the, the prior year, uh, they got a $48 billion increase in appropriations right after 9-11. And the whole question of where the money was went away. Yeah. Now, yeah. let's fast forward. Last year, there was, I think it was 6.5 or $8.5 trillion missing from DOD. I had a story called um uh yeah I, I have a note here that a relatively obscure audit report from the office of inspector general uh-huh. uh, says that the pentagon can't account for 10 trillion for the last 20 years not even dod yeah it's 10.5 last year there was uh in 2015 the latest audit report there was 6.5 trillion mm of undocumentable adjustments. And as of 2016, it's allegedly 10 trillion for the last two decades. Right. I don't know if you can confirm that. Yes, it's 10 and a, it should be 10 and a half. 10 and a half even, wow. So. Jeez. Now that's only DOD, that's yeah, not the that's other <laughs> agencies. So you have, between HUD and NASA, you probably have that we know of another billion and I haven't begun to pour through all the audit records. So, you know, so so figure we're up to we're probably up to about 12 trillion of undocumentable adjustments. But the thing that's important to understand is the after the 6.5 right be, right before the 6.5 trillion was announced to be missing from DOD, we had um we had Lockheed Martin spin off that division of Lockheed Martin into a new company that was created by a spin out from SAIC. And it just happens to be the company that is running uh, big projects down in Antarctica. Right. So, so now here's the thing. Running the information and payment systems the way Lockheed has is a very powerful position at DOD. Most companies don't just give that up. But my guess is one of the reasons they did give it up is the liabilities have now 
reached a point where they're better off with it off of their balance sheet. So I would suggest to you that if these do represent illegal transactions, the contracting affecting them and the banks affecting them are liable for the money stolen under the law. Mm. And, um, and there would be a reason a company would want to get it off of their balance sheet. Anyway, so we now have a very significant amount. And of course, we know the president is now proposing tremendous new appropriation increases. Now, the question you asked was, how could in a year when DOD has 400 to $600 billion for their total budget, how could they lose yeah. 10 times that amount? And the way they could lose 10 times that amount is with securities fraud. Mm. Okay. Because I've heard speculation that uh, someone like, let's say Lockheed Martin, gives money to pay them for some kind of service that needs to be off the books. Well, because the money have to come from somewhere. But now you're saying uh, security fraud. Could you explain that? Well, sure. If you if you issue federal securities off balance sheet mm. and they're not posted, in fact, we've seen tremendous problems. So one secretary of the treasurer of the treasury, uh, right after he published a, a study to try and identify total debt, <laughs> suddenly he resigned and the debt study was pulled off of the treasury website. Mm. Um, but we've seen other situations where, uh, the, the foreign accounts report that the U S owes them trillions more than the U S accounts show we owe foreigners. So you have tremendous accounting balances. This, in fact, this missing money problem has now turned up at NATO as well. Hmm. So we had a, a the Auditor General of NATO and some mysterious deaths happening. I think it was a, approximately a year ago. So the missing money problem seems to be spreading. But you have several big structural imbalances, and and let me describe what they are. First of all, the way the, the U.S. military budget works is the taxpayers fund wars, but then the assets acquired are kept private and probably some of them in the black budget. Mm. Okay? Mm. So, so if you look at the outstanding debt of the U.S., the debt's on our balance sheet, but the assets acquired with war are not. Okay? Mm. Then the second flow is the black budget. Now, the black budget is funded in a variety of ways. So this is financing. This is expenditures by government for governmental purpose that are secret. And in fact, in 1947 and 49, in both the NSA Act or the National Security Act and the CIA Act, we created a mechanism whereby money could be appropriated to different agencies and then clawed back into the into a secret budget for use in this way. Um, and then I believe that that has been supplemented by financial fraud and narcotics trafficking. And that's where the mortgage fraud comes in. And those flows are levered with more financial fraud and can be quite profitable. And then finally, there's what I would call a hidden system of finance, mm. which n never necessarily ran through government. It could have, but where you have tremendous assets acquired through war or so the seizures at the end of World War II. Mm. And, and those go to a variety of purposes but are very hidden. And one of the things that has happened over many, many decades since World War II is the black budget and the hidden system of finance have been growing more and more powerful, more and more powerful, 
as their overheads grow, they need more and more money. And basically what you saw with the bailouts was, I would say, what had been a creeping coup was the consolidation of a financial coup d'etat where those systems basically engineered a takeover and control. Yeah, we'll get to, to the bailouts and all that. I just want to say that uh, there was this international banker, uh, I, don't, I forgot what he worked for, but some of these big shots who jumped off a few years ago and said that uh, for the first time, the black economy is bigger than the white economy. Right. Well, and part of that is they've taken a lot of the trading dark. Mm-hmm. So now you have what's called the dark pools. And this this uh, corresponded with the fact that, remember, you, you have a number of the big currencies trying to expand their currencies as much as possible without making it obvious. So they're trying to... Inf- they're trying to print more money without it being turned inflationary. But, but if, if it's just as big as the white economy, that means that for every $10 uh, someone earns or uses, half of that is going into the black hole, right? Well, no, not necessarily. What it, what it means is that the GNP of that economy is bigger than the GNP of the, of the overt economy. Yeah, but the covert economy isn't producing anything. It's just leaching. Well, but we don't know. Well, depends on whether you think running up global narcotics trafficking is. There's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was going through the layers of the black economy. Mm-hmm. And what I was talking about was the structural problems with the federal budget. So if you if you look at the as the dark economy gets larger, one, you're paying for extraordinary technology and you don't own that technology. It's not in your balance sheet. It's on private balance sheets. Right. So, two, you're paying for wars and the assets acquired are on private balance sheets, not on your balance sheets. But three, your, you know, the debt that's used to finance to help fund this is on your balance sheet. So, if you look at all the assets that are being created, most of them are not on your balance sheet, just the expenditures and the debt. Hmm. And so you have an enormous imbalance going up yeah. between the black economy and the overt economy. Because the burdens are transferred to the white economy from the black, right? But right. all the profits are going the other way. Right. So so we've privatized the profits and we've externalized the expenses. Now that you know, now I'm just talking financially. Mm. If you look at the burden spiritually or in terms of people's time and health, you're talking about a situation that in all aspects becomes progressively more toxic and very, very wasteful of people's time because things continually debase. So another great source of money to the whole system is debasing the currency. But you get a debasement in quality of life as well as debasement in the use of your time and debasement in the assets that you've kept in the currency that's being debased. So you're talking about something which is unbelievably draining mm. to to the first. And I think to me the most draining thing, of course, is you've got one civilization which is financing two civilizations yeah. and the second civilization has to be kept secret. And so the amount of lies that have to be told and force that has to be used is, of course, also very, very draining. I liken it to the 
you know the stories of those guys who have two different families in two different cities? Yeah. And they just have to keep unbelievable number of lies going and, of course, have to make more and more money to pay for the whole thing. And the energy goes into that. Oh, I, I, I can't understand how they manage, but yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's very, it's extreme. If you look at what they've, the, the lengths they've gone to to manage the situation and to keep the second civilization secret, it's extraordinary. Now, mm. when you, when you said, well, the second one is just an expense, it doesn't generate revenue. Actually, it generates tremendous revenue. The running the global narcotics trafficking, um, the financial fraud, all these are very profitable. Now, they drain the, the total wealth of society, um, but they're unbelievably profitable. And then, of course, the system itself allows you to get control of the governmental budgets and debt issuance. Mm. And, of course, that just gives you more opportunity. And what's remarkable is how many businesses you run into as you go through the economy that are also literally being drained. In other words, yeah. they've got an organized crime hook into them and money's being siphoned out the back door. And of course, not, most of this money doesn't pay taxes. So it's quite... Um, no, but that's my point. If they were producing, if they were sustainable by themselves, they wouldn't have to rob uh, the white economy. But when they are squeezing and squeezing, it's obvious that we are actually slaving for them. Right, it's a slavery system. Mm. Uh, fast forward to nine. Well, we were at nine eleven. Um, there's also I want to read to you something here that I pulled off the net and get your comment upon it. Okay. It has to do with the so-called Black Eagle Trust Fund, where 240 billion covert securities were electronically cleared uh, under the guise of national emergency. Uh huh. Um, it says uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission declared a national emergency easing regulatory restrictions for clearing and settling security trades for the next 15 days. These changes would allow an estimated 240 billion in covert government securities to be cleared upon maturity without the standard regulatory controls around identification of ownership. Right. Yeah. Can you explain that scheme to us? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know if that particular trust story is true, but, uh, what I will say is that if you look at what happened during 9-11, you had enormous destruction of records, books and records of the largest government securities dealer, which would dovetail with what that those allegations are describing. But you also had huge destruction of books and records of the SEC and the FBI who were yeah. in the middle of – Many different building seven, right? Well, yeah, but they were in the middle of many different financial fraud investigations mm. where there was great criminal liability. And we saw right after 9 11, a whole bunch of Wall Street firms settled. My guess is pretty cheap because the SEC and FBI had to give up on trying to yeah. prosecute a whole lot of people. So, my guess is that the destruction of numerous records in other words 9-11 really protected many many different people from financial fraud charges and from ever having to make good on all sorts of fraudulent government securities yeah um if anyone out there doesn't know it let us tell them the incredible luck <laughs> quote unquote 
for for these looters because not only did Building 7, when that went down magically, uh, not only was that uh, entire floors of white-collar investigations that got buried there, like you say, all this stuff, but also the rocket that went into Pentagon went into exactly that area of Pentagon where they were trying to account for those uh, Rumsfeld trillions. <laughs> so, so right. lo and behold, so, Osama bin Laden, he came to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I would say that 9-11 was the most profitable covert operation in the history of the world. Mm. Um, if you look at the amount of money, so you, you had an insurance fraud angle that we don't have to go into, but it was quite profitable. Is that the in, inside illegal trade that happened uh, right before it hit? Well, um, there's lots of different allegations of of illegal trading. My guess, and this is just speculation, mm-hmm. is that there was exceptionally large profits on currency and long bond trading. Various people talk about stock options on the different airlines. I think that's peanuts. Whatever that was, that was small. But in the currency and the fixed income and derivative, especially the long treasury market, I think there was a fortune pay made. And my guess is it was traded by the Exchange Stabilization Fund and other government funds so that the compensation of the victims was paid out of the profits. Hmm is what it looks like to me. Finally, well, there are many different angles on this financially, but of course one is that the buildings really needed to be redone in a big way. In fact, it was it was attractive to take them down and rebuild, but you had an asbestos problem. Yeah. And this, if you look at what the cost of removing and handling the asbestos within the limits of the law, it was going to be just fantastically expensive and would make demolition and rebuilding Near impossible, I would assume. Not sustainable, yeah. Right, and so this was a very clever sort of way of doing it. I would point out, in terms of books and records, uh, you know, there is a history of buildings with valuable documentations and databases in them being blown up. Mm. So, for example, I was, uh, my company was doing uh, loan sales for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And we were about to go in to get the documentations for the Iran-Contra fraud period mortgages in Region 6, which had both the Arkansas and Texas in it. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, I wonder what's in those files. This could be dangerous. And right before we went in to get the files, uh, the Murrah building in Oklahoma City blew up and the files were destroyed. Was that the Timothy Way thing? Right. That was the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. And in fact, it looks to me as though, you know, if you study the history of that um, event, it looks to me like a lot of documents were moved into the Murrah building ahead of time so that they could all be conveniently blown up. Mm. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I'm always I always in my speeches, I tell people, you know, it's better not to work around databases involving a lot of financial fraud yeah i have uh, i have three peanuts to add to this gigantic fraud that went on 9 11 um, but it's peanuts compared to what we just pointed out right. uh, let's stay on the silverstein topic first that's the guy who owned who bought these buildings right before it happened 
and he took out insurance on it. And yeah. not only did he save a very unprofitable but required rework of them by blowing the asbestos all over New York citizens, right. but he also claimed double insurance, like uh, he it counted, every building counted for each terrorist attack, so he could get triple payments which he had to go to court to do that. So he profited big time, big time. The people who sold it probably thought, oh, we are, we're selling uh, liabilities here. But (laughs) this guy, he must have been in on it. And he is famed, of course, for quoting that pull it, pull it, the Billing 7 thing. But I had a journalist on, an investigative journalist. There are a few surviving... I mean, it's an anachronism today, but right. that race is not entirely dead. And she's been researching all sorts of uh, dark stuff like the P2 propaganda, do uh, all that stuff, uh, Vatican Bank, the God's Bank uh, who was hanged right. under the bridge, all sorts of stuff. And she's also been looking into Silverstein. She has, I think, two articles out there, but she had to, she stopped that for a while. She says she's going to continue maybe in the future, but... Um, Okay, but it's very interesting to see Silverstein's dirty connections to nine eleven. Right, yeah. James Corbett did a uh, an analysis of the sort of how the money worked on nine eleven, and I have it up at Solari.com, or I'm sure you can get it on his channel. And he got most of it. He was missing a couple pieces, but it's a very and he goes through the detail of sort of the Silverstein insurance policy issue. Mm. Yeah. No, uh, Corbett is doing incredible work. It's amazing that he's alive. Probably an advantage to be placed in Japan. That's where he lives. Right, (laughs) right. And then finally, there's one more footnote, and that is that under World Trade Center, there was gold bars stored. Uh, They are saying at least a billion. Because there were trucks, even after the first plane hit, there were trucks down there who was moving all the gold bars and leaving with them. So, But they didn't have time to get, get out of there before the first responders came. So they were, everything was yeah, went away. The first re- – the, the guys with the trucks? That's how I understand it. And it's all over. The, you can see eyewitness people who are telling about this. Of course, it's buried. It, it was – they would probably think it would be literally buried under there. Uh, never to be uncovered. So I don't know how they even try to explain this looting, but it's gone. Right. So that's a little loot there, just one billion. Right. Now, uh, if we move up in the timeline, when was the housing collapse? Well, you you had the housing, sort of the dump, I considered a pump and dump. Yeah. So you started to engineer it 94 to 96. It sort of began... 96. Yeah, I'm thinking about the on one that was after 9-11, that where I heard it was $5 trillion they looted. Well, well, I, I think they looted a lot more. But, okay, um, wow. but what happened was the dump began in 2006, and then the bailouts began in 2009 and lasted till 2012. So Yeah, so, so when it comes to the crack, there's two... Uh, exits of money there. One is the crack itself, right? And then it's the bailouts. So it's a double rape. First, you no, you you have tremendous exit of fraudulent money during the bubble. Yeah. So from 96 to 2006. 
years. Yeah. Okay. Ten years, you pull out fantastic amounts. Because remember, you have many more mortgages outstanding than there are houses. Right. But do you do have any estimate of how much that could have uh, paid them for the, those 10 years? Well, if you look at the bailouts, if you count the bailouts as approximately $27 trillion, that was almost five times more the amount of money it would have taken to pay off all the single-family residential mortgages in the country. Jeez. So my guess is you probably had, you know, two or three times – so if, if there's $8 billion of mortgages outstanding in the country, you probably had 15 to 25 or maybe, yeah, 15 to 25 billion of mortgages, or I'm sorry, trillion. I'm, wow. And that's not counting the bailouts. Well, yeah. So the bailouts would have taken out some of that. Yeah. So the question is how much? Now, the, your problem with the bailouts was both what's called collateral fraud, which is what I'm describing, mm -hmm. some of which would have been in Freddie and Fannie, um, some of which would have been in the mortgage pools uh, that weren't associated with Freddie and Fannie, so it have been across the mortgage market. But some, some of your problem was the derivatives. But where the bailouts, you talk as if the bailouts replaced as if those went into the economy. But uh, from what I surmised, much of the bailouts just went to the top of these private companies and were never well, but, invested back but, in society. So I'm going to grossly oversimplify. I issue uh, a million dollar fraudulent, a million dollars of fraudulent mortgage and I sell them to a bank in Germany. Mm -hmm. The the dump comes in the market. The Germans realize that their portfolio is worth 10 cents on the dollar. And so Obama comes in and is able to engineer buying those back from the Germans for a million dollars, even though they're only worth 100000 The Germans are eternally grateful and vote for Obama to get the peace prize because he bought back all the rotten paper from Europe. Mm. See? So the bailouts took out the fraudulent paper. So that money, when I buy back the fraudulent paper, I'm only, you know, I already got the million dollars. The million dollars is long gone. I'm not necessarily getting any fresh money. I may be. But first and foremost, I'm getting rid of the fraudulent paper I issued to steal the money. A white And the beauty of it is, the beauty of it is I steal the money, I wait till the statute of limitations are over, and then I bail it out after the statute of limitations are over. Uh, I don't know if I got that. What what does that achieve? Well, it keeps all the documents secret. Mm. One of the reasons they didn't want to have a auction, they wanted to keep the assets in the Treasury balance sheet or the Federal balance sheet, is they don't want those documents to see the light of day. If they if those documents got out, they'd have to blow up more buildings. <laughs> right. <laughs> I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Alt rail delete. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they know what they're doing. And uh, if we go to the Iraq war, we see that, and this is amazing, even though these figures are peanuts compared to what we've been talking about, they shiploaded cash over to right. Iraq, and they can't account for at least $18 billion. It's just, no, no, we just yeah spread it about. We don't know where it's gone. $18 bill. I mean, that's not all they shipped, but that's what I read of reported right. numbers went missing. Right. Amazing. So they're trying to 
to expand the money supply with no inflation in the G7 countries. And this is one of thousands of ways that you do it. Okay, so these money went from Iraq and back to the G7 countries? I have no idea where it went. I mean, I it it's... I'm assuming it was payola in many different places, as well as financing expenditures to rebuild Iraq that was so far above market price. No, but nobody has rebuilt Iraq. Besides, you you have that on the white economy. I'm reading this as just another opportunity to loot some money out of the system. You haven't rebuilt Iraq, but you spent a fortune on contracts doing things that were described as rebuilding Iraq. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. And these companies are incidentally the same companies we're going to discuss later in regards to the classified space program. So uh, even when they do work for uh, the Pentagon, you see the extreme level. I just saw a report in, I think it was the Young Turks or someone, who reported that they are overpaying, overpaying, overpaying. I'm not even talking about all this looting. I'm talking about white money, where let's say it really cost me $10 to do something, and then I charge you $1,000, right? Right. So the yeah. That's a way to loot, too. Yeah, that's a way to loot, too. And the question is, is, is that looting, or is that just payable to keep up the stock market? Mm. So the the biggest source of political campaign contributions are capital gains on real estate, and securities. Mm. So if I'm a, so let's say I have a stock that's trading at $20 at a price earnings ratio of 10 times earnings and we're making $2 a share. And so my, you know, so if I buy the stock today and then I get my congressman to swing big government contracts over to those companies, mm. then the stock goes up to, let's say I can get my earnings up to $4. Right. Well, then my stock goes up to 40 I have a double on the stock, and I can afford to pay big political contributions for that. Mm. In fact, I can short the stock and pay him to pull the contracts <laughs> and make even more on that. Yeah, amazing. And then we have, of course, um, what WikiLeaks just uh, came out with, uh, the so-called CIA emergency plan is exposed, where the Federal Reserve have given directly to CIA $25 billion. I I didn't get if that was per year or for a certain amount of year. But you know about this story? It's pretty fresh. I don't know this. Okay, you should check it out. It's it's a matter of weeks since it came out. Oh, okay. And twenty five billion. It doesn't sound that much, but if it's a year, and and besides, if it's from the Federal Reserve, then it's basically our money. Right. Yeah. But I have a question for you. Um, why do they have to loot in this way? As long as they control the Federal Reserve, can't they just make Federal Reserve print all the money they need? Well, part part of the reason it evolved this way is at the end of World War II, Eisenhower, by executive order, gave the CIA authority to provide security for Area 51. And that plus the seizures, uh, you know, of assets literally put the intelligence agencies in the position of being a banker for the black economy and when you combine that with the ability to affect covert operations on a non-transparent basis. So they gave them non-transparency. They gave them 
authority to be the most powerful banker in the world. And, and, you know, with basically a source of money, you could continue to grow and grow. Mm. So you've, you've basically created this creature that in many respects has more power than the, you know, the traditional governance structure of the U S government. Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, you called the president, the prisoner at the top. Yeah. And I'm wondering also if the CIA chiefs are kind of prisoner at the top, because it seems to me that there are structures behind, obviously we know there's compartmentalization and there's uh, black operations, black uh, departments behind departments. But of course, it seems to me that the official bosses are really just that they know themselves that they are stooges that they are uh, reporting to well it it depends because it, a lot of it uh, organizes around knowledge mm. so basically if you want to understand the part of the black economy that intersects with government you know between the intelligence agencies and the military how long is it going to take you to drill down and find all the bank accounts and all the off-balance sheet operations and staffing? Because remember, a lot of it now has been run through private companies on purpose hmm. so that you can keep it dark. So just like I was telling you the story, when I used to try and get the de defense contractor ran HUD's payment information systems to give me data that I was required by law to – I had to have it to to – implement the law mm. i couldn't get it they wouldn't give it to me <laughs> but aren't there anyone the cia boss the president couldn't ju he just order that information and make heads roll if if not okay so you're here's the theory uh in, in theory yes however do you have any idea how much time and effort it would take to try and get it and you'd have to know it was there you'd have to know how to ask for it You'd have to, I mean, we're talking about a mammoth job yeah. to even get a map of everything, let alone to, to get the leverage to get them to come clean. And do you have any idea what they can do in the meantime to bollocks you up and mess you up on your, on all your operations? Mm. So, I mean, that's why to a certain extent, sometimes you'll see these bizarre things happen in a place like Syria. What you realize is, you know, you have one group of mercenaries funded by one part of the military industrial complex within the defense establishment in the United States fighting the mercenaries funded by a different part. Of the yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think they know this. I don't think oh, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a matter of one hand not knowing what the other does. Oh, you'd be surprised. So the bureaucracy is that stupid? I, no, I don't think the bureaucracy is stupid. It's simply that you're talking about so much money and so many different factions. You know, this is a very organic system. It's like a mafia, a circle of mafia families who have a common interest if there's an outer enemy. Yeah. But are infighting when they are left in the shadow, something like that. Right, but I've I've always found the mafia to be much more. Um, this was a metaphor, obviously. For I'm not saying yeah. that Cosa Nostra is in charge. Uh, we could be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, there's there are all very old, deep relationships between the mafias and the intelligence agencies, but over time, the mafias have 
generally been taken out by mm. the by the intelligence agencies or put in uh, integrated into into the system right so they work for mm. right okay but uh, you know you've been in the system what do you think about how high up the knowledge of it goes classified space program and all that do you think that everybody in congress everybody in uh, the senate everybody in the administration how many are aware or and to what degree are they aware do you think i would say the people who are aware are relatively small um it's surprising how compartmentalized the system is now you know the the oftentimes when i've been in a boardroom or with a group of people who you would consider to be very powerful or sophisticated i've been shocked at how little they understood hmm. I would say all the way up to the very top. It's very much on a need-to-know basis. And people spend so much time living inside various bubbles. Yeah. That uh, and, and bubbles where they're on a need-to-know basis, it's remarkable how little they know. And there's very heavy sort of propaganda and mind control. But at the very top, they're quite clear about what's going on. I mean, the the reality is, is the people at the top. You mean the secretaries, what we call ministers? No, 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 no. I don't. I don't. No, I. I mean, because ultimately, there's no governance control within the government. So, so, so the bureaucrat bureaucrats would know more than the elected officials. No, not necessarily. But if you look at the U.S. government, it doesn't have information sovereignty and it doesn't have financial sovereignty which means the real decisions are made at a much higher level. They're not made. Anybody who's in the government whose name you know mm. is operating machinery, but they're not really making the decisions. They don't They don't have the power. They're dependent on the continual financing mechanism, and they're dependent you know, on, on the people who have the ability to kill with impunity. Right. So... But but are they aren't they aware of this? Uh, it's amazing if they're not. They have to be pretty stupid, I think. I'm not saying they know every nuts and bolts of 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 what's going on, but they must have an inkling of being overwhelmed uh, that that they can't change. Right. So that the swamp is larger than them. Here's Al. I I don't know where how, where things stand now. I'm always amazed whenever I get into a group of people who operate and do those jobs how little they know. Mm. And sometimes I'm stunned by listening to what they say, because if they understood what they were saying, they wouldn't say it. And and they don't seem to really understand what they're saying. So here's the thing: if you are in any of those positions. You spend a lifetime rising up the ladder, and you're very busy doing whatever it is you're supposed to do, and you don't necessarily have time to sit down and integrate. And what I find is, without that integration, particularly financially, of how the economy is working across all sectors and between the over economy and the black economy, you don't get a very good picture of what's really going on. So you know something's wrong, but you can't put your finger on it. Right, exactly. And uh, I guess also one would tend to scapegoat. But uh, I I don't understand that. I, I think if this is going to change, 
Uh-huh. Uh, I, I mean, change in the way, make it green, not red, right? The point you right. made in part one, which is so important because we're all hostages here. Right. Right. But if that's going to happen, at least you need you need two qualities from the very top. You need sincerity, which is a filter in Washington. It's very rare we see a sincere politician. And you need uh, courage. You need courage and sincerity. Right. Now, I saw in Ron Paul, I saw, and I see the same in Bernie Sanders. Both of them, I think, is, are pretty sincere, yeah. which is very rare among politicians. I'm not saying they could change anything if they because i think they both of them lack a little of the what trump at least what we thought trump had which was this i'm not giving a damn because you need uh some of that to right uh to implement changes but then again if someone rises to the top who has those two qualities they can just take him out i mean jfk well let me let me play devil's advocate Sure. If someone tried to tell the truth, they wouldn't get as far as Trump got. So, for example... Yeah, but not even telling the truth, just wanting to do something about it. Right, but you can't, here's the thing. You can't make real changes without transparency. Mm. And the general population can only handle so much transparency at a time. Yeah. So the shift comes when you get a profound shift in consciousness and 10% of the population say, you know, I really want to know the truth. Now, we saw during the election, Trump had to back off from the whole birther statement. Mm. Now, I've never researched President Obama's birth certificate, but from the little I've skimmed, I'm assuming he wasn't born in the U.S., that he's not a U.S. citizen, and the birthers are probably right. But let's assume for a second that they were right. There's no way that, you know, Trump had to give up on that because the population cannot fathom that that could be true. Now, whether it's true or not, I assure you, it's easily possible. Yeah. Is it possible that the CIA would profile somebody and turn them into president even though they weren't a U.S. citizen? Absolutely. Could that happen? Sure. <laughs> yeah. No problem. <laughs> yeah, you've been talking about control files. Yeah. Would you expand a little upon that? Sure. So control files rule the country. Um, control files are the file that someone has with the dirty pictures on you. Mm. So, uh, we all remember J Edgar Hoover and his dirty pictures on various people. But the idea is that nobody goes above a certain status unless they have a control file. And of course, if somebody has your control file, here's the question. So, so if there's $10 trillion missing from the U S government and we had $27 trillion of bailouts. I always estimate the financial coup at about $50 trillion. So how do you steal $50 trillion without having to hand out huge bonuses? Well, you have control files. Because if I help you steal $10 trillion out of the U.S. government, I'm going to want a big bonus, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but if I have a control file, then I'll do it just to keep you from telling my spouse what's in my control file. And it's interesting because when I litigated with the federal government, when I worked at the at HUD, the secretary used to threaten me and he'd say, you know, I'm looking for your dirty pictures and I can't find them, but I will. And I used to say, good luck because they're, you know, you're not going to find anything. And the only stuff you ever could find or make up would be worse for the government than for me. Yeah. So um, anyway, so. <laughs> it's cheaper with control files, that's for sure. 
Well, but if you look at what happened to me, I went through a process where they tried to falsify evidence that didn't work and they tried to falsify more. That didn't work. I caught them on it and that just made it more embarrassing. And then they got, then they got physical, but they kept trying to fake stuff up. And, you know, it's like the Russian ruse. They kept trying to, oh, the Russian. Yeah. They even tried to run you off the road. I heard. Oh, there was everything. Yeah. Running off the road was just the beginning of it. Wow. Oh, yeah, I used to find dead animals on my doorstep. People would break in and walk around my house in the middle of the night. Oh, no, it just went on and on and on. Anyway, so because they're trying to terrorize you. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, so they made up a ton of stuff. And so if you don't have a control file, think of it this way. I spent 11 years and six and a half million dollars proving that they were trying to falsify my control file. Mm. So, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's a I, yeah. it's dirty business. And if you look at anybody who's trying to get anything done in Congress or running a business, they don't want to spend eleven years and six and a half million dollars proving that there's nothing in their control file or having what's in their control file dumped out on them. Yeah, yeah, that's the usual. But a person like Ron Paul, he's like an autist. There's nothing on him. Uh, but they always have, you know, the family card. So good people care and good people right. have. So so they can try to, to intimidate them that way. But we saw uh, both Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders, they, they represent completely different politics. But they have that in common that they are sincere believers in their way and yeah. uh, couldn't be taken out by control files. So... And, and I guess only hints at, because they're not dangerous until they get power. But we saw what happened to them. Both of them had historic, overt even, rigging against them. Right. Uh, the Paul case didn't get that much attention back in, in the day 08 and 12 because the the Sanders case got more attention because of WikiLeaks and all that, right? Right. And, and now people right. are more ready to get that information they weren't back then uh, except for obscure people like me who, who paid attention so uh, but you know you said in part one a very interesting thing and uh, uh, you said that when people see it in movies then they realize it's real then they're conditioned to understand how it works right, right? <laughs> and i right. remember i just saw an episode of billions it's it's a TV series like uh, the one about the president, about Washington. And there's a guy there, the one of the protagonists. He's going to run for office. Okay. And his backers, because nobody's getting anywhere without being backed by a faction, by some power people. And his backer, he said that, yeah, we need to vet you. So he sent like a professional... This woman was like a professional uh, dirt digger. We're going to find out what's on you. Right. Right. And you have to tell me everything and it's for your own good so that it won't come out in the media or from our enemies. And so she she did some digging on her own and he had a confession hour and all that stuff. But then I, I was thinking when I watched it, who's to say who she's working for, you know? Right. They may think she's working for him or his backer, but what if she reports everything, you know, to the real power people and they're, voila, we have your control file. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's how it works. Well, in my experience, the people who run the world, one of the things they spend a huge amount of time on is personnel planning. So they literally, because they think of this as a breeding program, 
if you will. Mm. So they got your file before you're born, and they're tracking. They groom people, you know, basically. Right. Yeah. And and they're marvelous at at sort of orchestrating the talent to where it makes them the most money, and they're very good at moving the talent around. And if you're not right for this, they'll get you over there. And and the talent uh, doesn't even necessarily know, right? Oh, no, it's quite invisible. Mm. You know, I used to, I'll never forget, I was on Wall Street once, and I got a call saying that I was being given this huge award, and there was a huge luncheon for the award, and it was the strangest feeling, Al, because there was no way I deserved that award. Mm. Mm. And I thought, oh, my resume is being prepared for something. It's like, what, it's like an Obama Peace Prize? <laughs> yeah, it was like the Obama, it's my version of the Obama Peace Prize. And... <laughs> I thought, uh-oh, what's this for? What's this about? Yeah, but you were aware enough to be suspicious of it. Yeah, it felt very creepy. Mm. So you kind of turtle through, but it's creepy. Yeah. But nowadays, you don't even need control files because of NSA. They get everything straight into the database. Well, that's the question. How much do they get? I think it's pretty significant. I mean, I oper I try and operate on the on the assumption that everything is accessible to the government. And to a certain extent, all of my sort of interactions with the government are quite cordial. So in one respect, I'm one of the most vetted people in America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, and if I have problems, I think that most of the problems are not related to government. They're related to media companies and the private side. So it's the fake news cycle. Mm. And, you know, whether or not the corporate guys get to control the fake news cycle. So I think if we have problems, that's probably where it comes from. Right. Yeah. But but what, what do you think about foreign governments? I'm pretty sure the Norwegian government are very naive. How, how much in the know are the tops in other international in i mean the russians of course they know what's what's going on probably the, russian, the chinese too. russian intelligence is extraordinary yeah and i suspect chinese intelligence is pretty good but from what i've seen of the european intelligence services i don't know a lot but i think they're pretty savvy about what's going on oh yeah the brits of course the brits but what about smaller governments smaller countries do you think everyone in top knows uh, something of what's going on i think in the Northern European countries, yes. I think they're pretty knowledgeable. Remember, anybody who handles big investment has to be knowledgeable. Yeah. So the the knowledge organizes around the management of the financial risk positions, and they can't afford not to know. So so, I think the knowledge is there. At least they know they are working for someone else. Right. If they buy into this bullshit like uh, war against drugs, war against terror, they have to know. Well, but here's what's important to understand, and I've seen this at the top of every government that I've ever had any view into, mm -hmm. and that is that they all believe the general population is much happier not knowing. Yeah. yeah. So they sincerely believe that they are optimizing by uh, keeping this kind of secrecy. Now, there are other pressures to keep secrecy, but they really, really believe that the population is happier not knowing. Yeah, they think they're doing us a favor. 
And they have to, right. and that's just psychology. They have to rationalize it. Nobody, well, I'm not saying nobody, but if you're not a psychopath, and not everybody are psychopaths, even idealists who go into some sort of uh, change work, they have to tell themselves that this is for the better of uh, the people. Right. In order just to survive, right? Right. Mm. So, I don't know, there, there are many different cover stories that make it psychologically acceptable for people to go along with what's happening mm. and that's one of them yeah and i think actually i think the masses we are partly to blame too because we too have a cognitive dissonance even though we've been dumbed down and everything is working against us and all that if some people are able to know, others are able to know. Yes, I know people are working three jobs and are, are terrorized and in poverty and all health problems and all that. But at least if you don't have that excuse, if you choose to be more into reality or even if you're aware of such a thing as the UFO phenomenon and, and you don't want to look more into that, know that we have the internet. Everything is at your fingertips. Everybody can find all this problem. All you have to do to stop this cold. It's funny, I have a, we have a coin, a silver coin, and on one side is, it says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If everyone did two things, one is they only did unto others what they would, went done unto them, and they only financed unto others what they would want financed unto them. If every person just did that, this whole thing would stop. Mm. Period. End of discussion. The question in any system is who enforces so if you create a secret government with weapons to enforce, you get one system. If everyone will just follow the golden rule, mm. especially with respect to their financing, boom. That's the enforcement. Well, if you pay taxes, you don't have so much choice over that. Though in some countries like Denmark, you can actually cross off what you don't want your taxes to go to. Right. Which I think is brilliant because if everybody says not military, not military, not military, yeah, so <laughs> they would have a. I think it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, it's very good. But then they would just take, instead of financing it through tax, they would finance it through oil and stuff like that. So <laughs> they can move around. Right. But there's another point here, and that is that you said earlier that it's not a market driven. Uh, economy basically and but that kind of explains also why most economic models break down because they don't take into account the black economy that was my right. point in part one when i right. said that so for years people have been saying you know it's gonna crash it's gonna crash and yeah. what they didn't understand is no we're sucking a huge money amount of money out of the overt economy but it's cycling back in through the black economy controlled and owned by different people and you're going to get a very different phenomena. Hmm. Yeah, so so you had uh, this uh, old finance whiz. He was, uh, what's his name? He was the head of the Federal Reserve. Uh, they brought him back not long ago, and he said that, yeah, I was wrong. My model was wrong. And, uh, he wasn't wrong. He's lying. <laughs> oh, so he, he's not just a stupid... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just lying. Oh, so he knows what it's all about. Of course. They had a financial community talk. What's his name again, just for the record? Alan Greenspan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they engineered a bubble, and they used that bubble to suck trillions of dollars out of the economy. They had a financial coup d'etat. Of course he knows what they were doing. He's mm. a total liar. Yeah, but he follows the system of Keynes. Keynes, what you're saying. Al, Al. 
when you issue trillions of dollars of fraudulent securities off balance sheet in the market, I assure you that's not Keynes, that's not Friedman, that's not monetary, that's not fiscal, that's fraud, that's organized crime. Mm. Now, you can say it's not organized crime because it's behind national security, but I assure you that guy knows exactly what he's doing. He and Bob Rubin knew exactly what they were doing. They were doing, they were engineering a global financial coup d'etat. Mm. Outside. So, yeah, so he was just bullshitting excuses. It's total yaya. Mm. Do you have any idea? The Constitution of the United States says that all appropriations must be envisioned in an appropriation. When you issue government securities and you spend outside of those provisions and outside of the laws related to financial management, you are engaged in a crime, in a felony. Mm. Now, you can say, well, national security does this and that and this and that. I assure you, whatever they did, that is an unbelievable felony. At the same time, you are dropping SWAT teams into poor neighborhoods and rounding up innocent kids who are just walking down the street. You pull the money on the public defender's office. You stuff them into jail where they're doing slave labor. Meantime, while you're stealing all the assets of the country and saying you're not a criminal. Mm. I'm not going to let Alan Greenspan get away with that. And I thought that you might excuse him and say he just didn't know. No, I'm thinking some of these people are following wrong models. They're idiots, basically, like uh, idealists. Oh, come on. Do you have any idea how much work it takes to issue that amount of fraudulent securities? That is a hard job. It takes thousands of people working hard. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. In 1994-95, uh, my company was working as the lead financial advisor to the Department of Housing and Urban Development and they were working on their uh, mortgage origination plans for the Federal Housing Administration. And they were also working on their affordable housing targets for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And I just happened to be in the office working on the strategic plan with the equivalent of the chief financial officer when the affordable housings were announced. Mm -hmm. At the same time that FHA and its plan was showing mammoth increases in mortgage insurance in poor neighborhoods. And I looked at the the equivalent of the chief financial officer. And I said, wait a minute, you know, people are going to have to refinance their house two and three times a year from prison to hit these targets. <laughs> you know, this is impossible. Yeah. You know, so it was clear that it was fraudulent. Yeah. You were talking about Freddie Fannie and FHA issuing more mortgages than there were homes in those, in those places. And the chief financial officer turned to me and said, shut up. This is none of your business. Mm. Okay. Now, that's only one of millions of actions that needs to be taken. You know, you had the whole government mortgage credit line because you have many different – you have the VA, you have FHA, you have Freddie and Fannie. And they have to ha – they have tons of rules to prevent large losses. You know, losses are bad for communities. They're bad for people. Mm. They're bad for – they're bad for real estate values in the neighborhood. So – all those systems have been designed to prevent high defaults. And if you're going to change it, you have to change thousands and thousands of rules and regulations and even laws to make a housing bubble possible. It's a big bureaucratic task to build and engineer 
a big housing bubble. And that's just in the federal government. Then you have to do the same at all the big banks and in the mortgage market and with the rating agencies and everything else. Mm. So you're talking about a huge nuts and bolts operation to get that that thing going. And one of the ways they got it going was by terrorizing the team at HUD and, and my company was a way of terrorizing everybody in Washington to say, say, if if you protect the federal credit, this is what's going to happen to you. So you better play ball. And of course, every almost everybody did. Yeah, that's my point. Then that back to the point of who knows. People have to know. But that. when Alan Greens, who do you think sitting at the top of that? Mm. None of that can happen without the the head of the central bank and the secretary of treasury ordering it, insisting on it, following up on it, et cetera, et cetera. So they have deputies, and their deputies are all making that happen. So they are in the know, too. So it goes. Well, you're saying that Hannibal marched his armies across Eurasia and captured Rome by mistake. He didn't know it was his, <laughs> his, you know, his lieutenants were out of control, and he didn't notice, and he was just along for the ride eating grapes. Okay, but then, should... yes, but then, then many people, many, many people know, because you said earlier. Yes, thank you. Of course. Yeah, but you said earlier that you thought only those at the top are aware. Ah. But then actually this have to go... Well, no, what, it, for the housing bubble? Well, for... Millions and millions of people were involved. Mm. Millions and millions of people. And they were all making money. Right. Yeah, because if they're paid for it, it's easier to get them to go along. Right. But for Alan Greenspan to get on TV and say, oh, my model was wrong. No, his, his model wasn't wrong. <laughs> it was very interesting. I was with a group of very successful, established people and one of really a top financial guy. And he was saying, you know, the Americans really messed up with the bailouts. I said, no, they didn't. Mm. The Americans were right. What you have to understand is it was the whole bailout was successful. They issued $27 trillion of fraudulent paper. Then they stuck it to the taxpayer and they got away free and clear mm. and no one went to jail. Yeah. So the Americans got it right. It was hugely successful. Yeah. So, so don't sit here and say the Americans got it wrong. You may not like the Americans. You may not like having a financial coup d'etat. But basically what they did is they talked the boomers into working hard for decades. And then right before the boomers retired, they stole all their retirement savings. And now they can turn to the boomers and say, well, there's no money. It's, you know, what can we do? Yeah. And this trickles down. And it's not just the boomers. All right. And Alan Greenspan is, is sitting on TV saying, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah, he should be in jail. But uh, do you think? Oh, jail is much too nice. Yeah, for Alan. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's not even open that door. Uh... <laughs> okay, so so they all know. Um, but what do you think about models like Hayek? Uh, are all models irrelevant then because of how we're? Uh... Well, models aren't irrelevant. But when I when I look at most, because you know, if there's any model that I have affection for, uh -huh. it's the Austrian model. Yeah. But it doesn't take into account basically this combination of two civilizations, one of which exactly. is invisible to the other, mm. and has extremely powerful technology that the other not only doesn't have but doesn't know exists. So Hayek and and the Austrians, which I think is a very valuable, useful body of work. Mm -hmm. You need to integrate that with the reality of multiple civilizations with very different technology and power levels. Exactly. 
so and, or or let me say it this way yeah. Hayek assumes that we're all just one species and we all have empathy for each other right and that is not the case no so take Hayek and peel off a group of one percent of one percent that has no empathy for the rest and there you go mm. yeah but uh, so if we had a white one big transparent economy and we it was uh, following the lines of the Austrian school we could have a prosperous economy then. Oh, yeah. Everybody could earn. There wouldn't have to be victims, right? Right. So so if if we had a economy where we were free to optimize with market principles mm. um, and there was enough transparency, so it was a relatively inexpensive issue to implement the laws, mm -hmm. I estimate wealth would be 100% greater than it is now. 100%? Now, Wow. Yeah. And what was interesting is if everybody agreed to fund the black budget, there'd be a lot more juice <laughs> to fund the black budget. Yeah. The problem is that... They should just come clean. <laughs> er, right. Everybody would want to know, well, where's it going? That's the part of the challenge of getting to that 100%. So if you look at the economy, the potential for enormous wealth is there. Now, if you look at the way the leadership's going, they seem to be sort of prototyping which is more efficient, a robot that can think like a human or a human who has been integrated with machine tools. Hmm. And, and you know, so transhumanism versus human-like robots, who's more efficient? Of course, the danger is whoever that 1% of 1% is, they think they can get closer to that 100% by centralizing control and replacing the humans with the robots yeah but they have forgotten a very important lesson i'm gonna i'm gonna rant a little here now because <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to the charles dickens days when there was a very huge and obvious class divide uh -huh. um, that was after the industrial revolution but then came the workers revolutions and that scared the shit out of the elite so they I mean many people think that the workers revolution you know the better for the unions more power the social democratic like my country is a typical social democratic power okay. many think that oh yeah we fought it the people fought fought it forth and after that it's been like a fight of the balance right. but i think it's more realistic to recognize that the elite realized that if we give, if we cut them some slack, if we create a middle class, we can actually keep this ship floating much better. Right. So we grant them some concessions, and then we keep this, uh, we keep them well fed and dumbed down, and everybody's happy. Now it seems to me that today's generation of elites, the oligarchs of today, has forgotten that lesson, yeah. and what they're not calculating in their incredible inbred uh, decay <laughs> is that. First of all, they're following economics that has unrealistic models. So the, the, the International Money Fund, the World Bank, all that, when they try to do something abroad, they're making more mess of the globalism than they're actually solving anything. Now, that may be deliberate, like you're pointing out, but they're not calculating for the backlash. Countries no. get angry and people get angry. So we're at the brink of revolution. And when they willingly dismantle the middle class, they're not uh, anymore thinking that let's buy people, let's get them on board. They are actually willing to take the risk of revolutions. And maybe like you're implying here that they're thinking, well, 
we're going to turn people into machines anyway. So it doesn't matter. It may be that overt. But uh, I do think they they are, on the other hand, not very bright anymore because they're so inbred, so decayed. So it's a different Al, civilization that they're not Al thinking is, of the backlash. Al, the, you're going in and out. So can we reconnect? Can I hang up and re- reconnect? Oh, sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hello? Oh, much better. Okay. I must have been on to something there then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But did you get my did you get the gist of it? Yeah, so I think the question is, you know, there's a real question as to how many what's the optimal population and how do you manage population? And I think that's a really important question that we all need to take responsibility to ask. Now, the preference seems to be to herd everybody into into megacities. Yeah. And if you look, probably the best single video on the global economy that's ever been created is Sir James Goldsmith's interview with Charlie Rose in 1994, when he explains what a terrible idea creating the WTO and the Uruguay round of GATT is. It's quite remarkable. Mm. And he, um, what he talks about is how you're going to literally take two to three billion people who are living on the land and move them into cities where there are no jobs for them. Mm. And then you you add to that fact the fact that you're going to automate with robotics and artificial intelligence. And you have these two dynamics, like two tsunamis coming to each other, which is people basically being thrown off the land by the industrialization of agriculture in Asia versus robotics and artificial intelligence and all sorts of automation. And you think, how exactly is this going to work? And the answer is, I don't know. I have no idea. But uh, clearly... Maybe they don't have an idea either. I don't know. Well, they have ideas, but they don't seem that bright, actually, uh, when you look at... Uh, My experience with the people who run the world is that they are extraordinarily bright. Yeah, bright in looting, but do you think they, okay, how many steps ahead? There are facts. I mean, take the internet. They would never have launched the internet if they saw the enormous backlash that it's giving. So they're not all powerful. Oh, no, actually, they did launch the internet, and it's the ultimate control tool. So Yeah, on the one side. Remember, if you have a backdoor in essentially everything and you have complete physical control, particularly with weaponry from space. Mm -hmm. You know, the Internet's a great idea. It allows you to get everybody online, and that's the ultimate harvest is when you bring out a global digital currency and everybody's got to use it. Mm -hmm. So you have real-time intelligence and you have complete financial control. So absolutely, they brought out the Internet. And yes, did they know what they were doing? Of course they did. Yeah, because it, it seems to me that it's a threat to them. You have stuff like Bitcoin or here in Norway, it's popular with uh, exchange rings. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, I'm an anarchist when it comes to economy. I think that anything people value should be legalized valuta. Yeah. But uh, of course, they have to smack down on any kind of independent or autonomic kind of currency, even if it's just you and me trading services. Right. Because all of that is a threat to their centralized monetization, right? Right, right. And in fact, if you look at what it would take to get to 100% wealth, 
you'd need systems with local currencies, among others. You know, you'd need mm. multiple currencies, but you'd certainly need multiple cur uh, local currencies. Mm. Right. I want us to uh, – one final important point I think we should elaborate a little on is for those who are not already on board with what we've alluded to, to all throughout this talk is the classified space program. I want us to make a little case for that economically because okay. when we see all this loot being pumped out of the white economy – And you said, what, 50 trillion is your estimate? Right. Yeah. And we see even that, I mean, Joseph, he makes a point out of that there's two black budgets, right. two layers to it. One is actually white. <laughs> I guess that would be the right. money they allocate to CIA. Right, right. That's meant to be black. Yes. Right. Yes. And then there's... So there's a white black budget and there's a black black budget. Right. right. So just so everyone understands here, we're not even talking about the white-black budget. <laughs> <laughs> It's so much deeper. So, But then every normal person who doesn't have a head for economy obviously asks themselves, okay, so if 50 trillion or, or maybe even more is pumped out, where is it going? Because it ah. can't go just to some people's pockets because my layman's explanation for that is... If I'm already one of the oligarchs, one of the 0.1%, and I have uh, untold trillions, then right. it doesn't matter if I get from 10 trillion to 20 trillion because I can't even spend that money. It's just a number in, in the system. Right. So obviously it's not enough that they just are funneled up into some pockets or into some corporations. It has to be used for something. Yes. And if you take a look in the world today, I don't see any huge Manhattan projects or, or anything like uh, Marshall help thing going on. Things are just getting worse. So there's nothing to legitimize. Well, you do occasionally. Well, certainly you see the underground basis. Right, so that's right. certainly part of it. Yeah. And the other thing is occasionally you'll see something happen funny with government financing. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I have is if they're plugging some holes with the covert money. Mm. So I'll never forget at one point there was in the early 2000s, there was uh, a big problem with state deficits and California had a huge deficit. And then literally it was like somebody turned the lock and opened the safe and then suddenly nobody had any deficits every, anymore and everything was fine. Wow. <laughs> thought, wow. Somebody just money just flushed in and. And fix that. Where'd that come from? So Oh, so the tweak uh, here and there occasionally. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes I think there's a tweak back up into the white budget. But, um, yeah, there's there's no doubt that – well, let, let's stop here because we're talking about the financing now. Mm. Start to take – collect up a list of all the legitimate UFO sightings mm. and description of the technology associated with those sightings. And then start to price out how much you think it would cost to have Boeing, Raytheon, and Lockheed Martin build those UFOs. And what you start to see is, you know, we've got $150 trillion of, of hardware flying around the planet. Yeah. Where did it get built? Who built it? And who paid for it? And then you start to realize, oh, or you look at the global spring. You know, we're, we've got planes all over the world spraying fantastic amounts of stuff into the atmosphere. Almost all countries, not everyone. Right, not everyone. And and so that's a very expensive process. Mm. So if you just look at the what's 
going on in the skies, whether it's the building of a space fence and digitizing the atmosphere or funny UFOs flying around, you're talking about trillions of dollars. Yeah. I think Dolan made a point for that. I mean, one thing is expenses for building this uh, exotic technology, but just to have security for all these spacecrafts right. is probably just as expensive. Right. And yeah, ma- this is a big maintenance bill. Yeah. And, so, and, and we see it's not being built in my backyard. So the right. only possibilities are stuff like Antarctica right. or even off-world in space or even on the moon and stuff like that. Right. And if right. that's in the equation... Good. Then they need more than fifty trillion, I think. Right. No wonder there. Well, it's interesting though. You, we just had a Goldman Sachs publish something saying that asteroid mining was getting reasonable because the costs. If you look at the mining industry on Earth, uh, miners are spending more and more money and going further and further out to dig more and more rock to get smaller amounts of metal. Mm. So the margins are clearly dropping on planet, and uh, there's great sort of push afoot to justify asteroid mining. So the question is, is that because they really think it's going to be economic or they want to just justify the amount of space activity that's going on? Mm, Good point. Right. But always when they come out with something, it's because they're starting to acclimatize us for that, making us used to the idea. So usually far ahead of what they announce. Right. About 10 years ago, because I, as I was driving around the country, I started to see all these spaceports being built. Hmm. And so the infrastructure was being built out. Al, you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Al? Yes. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I guess you said something you were not supposed to. I heard you all the time. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so so I started to drive around the country, and I started to see spaceports being built all over the country, right. but you didn't hear anything about it in the press. It was just, they were popping up all over the country, and that initially started to get me interested. And then I started to look at the budgets, and I realized we were seeing fantastic growth in the Asian space programs. Ah. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read my annual wrap-up that not this last year, but the year before we did it on space. Hmm. And I came to the conclusion that the reason we rebalanced the global economy was to dramatically accelerate our shift in becoming a multi-planetary civilization. Hmm. Because to do it, we needed the Chinese and the Indian engineering programs. We needed the basically, if you look at what Japan, Korea China and India are doing in space, it's quite extraordinary. It's sophisticated? Oh, very. And, uh, you know, the Chinese now have more people working in their space program than the Americans. Hmm. So I think if you want to become a multi-planetary civilization and you want that number of engineers helping you do that. Of course, they're dumbed down and ruined America, so they need, <laughs> they need no talent uh, right. elsewhere. Right, exactly. Exactly. So they're even expropriating that work. Wow. Yeah, but if you look, I know in 1997, I was negotiating uh, joint ventures and software development in, in, in China. Yeah. And I could get, it would cost me 150000 to get a really good database 
developer in who went to MIT in Washington, it would cost me $10,000 in Beijing or Shanghai. Right. So... Well, why don't I just use uh, some of these exotic uh, spacecrafts in, let's say, in, in war? Well, it's probably because they want the war to go on and on. They don't want to, you know, win it or anything. Well, but if you look at some of the disaster capitalism that's been going on, I would say that they have been using the exotic mm. technology. So there's, of course, the question of exactly what happened in 9-11 mechanically. Yeah. And what was used to bring down the buildings. But also, if you look at, uh, so I'll tell you my Indonesia tsunami story. Mm -hmm. Um, About two or three weeks before the Indonesia tsunami, I had a client who wanted a world bond fund. And I spent a lot of time researching them and chose two, um, one of which was a closed-end fund that had about 15% of its paper, 10 or 15% in, um, in Indonesian sovereign debt. And then a week after he purchased it, bam, it went down. So it went down by the exact percentage of the Indonesian sovereign debt for no reason. Hmm. We we couldn't figure it out. I'd never seen anything like it. I was stunned. I just, such a thing couldn't happen. So we called the sponsors. It was a very good sponsor. What's going on? Why is this happening? Oh, at the same time, there was massive insider trading. Massive. Massive sales. So I was like, what is going on? And then the Indonesian tsunami happened, and I realized, oh, they knew. They knew a week ahead of time. Yeah. They traded it. So that was engineered, uh, probably. All I can tell you is they knew it was going to happen a week ahead of time. Mm. And they're not prophetic. So. Uh, like uh, Kennedy said, things doesn't just happen. It's made to happen. Exactly. Yeah. That's my, that was my point about Alan Greenspan. <laughs> Yeah, I got that. And that's that's why I'm wondering how many are in on this, okay. uh, just knowing. Well, but here's the thing. The, the, the greatest cover story in the world is that government is incompetent and people are stupid. That's a cover story. Right. It's just, it's a complete cover story. Don't buy it. And of course, the greatest cover story of all is complexity. You know, oh, it's really complicated. Yeah. We can't understand it. It's blah, 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 blah. You know? <laughs> well, they, they do manage to make economics look complex to most people. Yeah, but here's the thing one of the shifts of consciousness it has to have yeah. is every person, every citizen needs to understand, oh, I can understand it. It can be made simple enough. So yeah. if I look at a bridge, the architectural specifications are complicated, and I couldn't draw that. But I can understand a picture. Yeah. A picture can have integrity for what that bridge looks like and how it's built, and I can understand that. So if you and I don't understand Yeah, that, have you seen Monia's Depth, those cartoons? Yeah, 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 yeah. That helped me understand the depth economy. Ah, okay. That was pictures. Yeah. So if, if we don't understand it, it's not because we're stupid. Or mm. because we're not educated, it's because somebody has really gone to a lot of effort yeah. to make sure <laughs> it's not understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So Gibberish. part of our consciousness is has got to be I can understand and I will take responsibility to understand and I will not allow anybody or anything to make me ashamed that I don't understand. Right. Yeah. But then we need people like you who can help uh Solving that maze, you know, uh, getting some of this double speak away. Okay. Can I 
Can I tell you one of my favorite stories sure. in this subject? So I took a Bible class in 1998 that was fabulous. And it was taught by the co-pastor at the church, but she had a teaching assistant who was one of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. And she was a paralegal at a Washington law firm. Mm. And so she came to me one day and she said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. She said, I, uh, all my wealth is in my home and in my 401k at the law firm. And I'm trying to make up my mind what to invest it in, but I don't understand the investment options. And I've tried to understand, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. Would you help me? I said, sure. Mm. So she sent me the prospectus for the investment she was interested in investing in. And it's mortgage-backed securities. Now, Al, I had been a partner at one of the top investment banks. I had an MBA from the Wharton School there were people who will tell you at the time I was a financial genius. I'm not saying that I was, but certainly I loved finance and it's been a lifetime learning about it. Hmm. And I had been assistant secretary of housing and run the federal housing administration, which is the agency that issues the insurance that's, that insured the mortgages and the fund that she was looking to invest in. Mm-hmm. So, so I had a little bit of background. <laughs> a little bit. So I, I read this prospectus and I couldn't understand a word. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just couldn't understand it. So I called right. her and I said, do you mind if I get on the phone with the person? She, oh, one of her problems was the person who was in charge of explaining it to her, you have a customer support line and you call, mm. was really mean to her and she felt intimidated. Now, I didn't believe anything could intimidate this woman. She could get up and on a Monday night make, you know, buy, make the, you know, exodus fascinating to 250 people. So this was a fearless woman. Mm. So I... I, so we get on the phone with this woman, and she's just tearing me to shreds. She's so mean. And so finally, I said to her, you know, let me, let me explain something. I have not properly introduced myself. I have an MBA from Wharton in finance. I was a partner and member of the board of directors of Wall Street Investment Bank. I was then assistant secretary of housing that ran the federal housing mortgage insurance funds that insured the mortgages in this portfolio. And if I don't understand this, then no one can understand mm-hmm. this. So I don't care how mean you're going to be to me. I'm going to keep asking questions until, because I know I can figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, no one can figure it out. So she cracked and then admitted the reason she was being mean is she couldn't understand right. it. Right. It was a defense mechanism. Yeah. I said, so, okay, we're three smart people. Between the three of us, we ought to be able to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> how did it go? It went great. The three of us sat on the phone and worked together. And between the three of us, we figured it out in plain English what it was and how it worked. Huh. Okay. Okay. And it was fun. It got fun. It was fun. Once they realized I couldn't understand it, they didn't feel so bad. But what was the source of the of the confusion? The source of the confusion was the people doing all the securities fraud had really powerful, expensive lawyers and made sure that all this stuff was so confusing mm, mm. that no one would ever be able to figure out what the hell was going on. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that obtuse. It really doesn't. So anyway, so, but the moral of the story, and I finally realized after, I don't know, it was a while later, oh, she's probably investing in all the predatory lending that's mm. threatening the value of her own home. Yeah. So the complexity is a cover story. Mm. It doesn't, you know, the architectural specifications on something for good reason have to be complex, just like they are on a bridge or water and sewer system. But 
but you should be able to understand how things work. And if you, if you don't, then something wrong is going on and it's not your fault. Somebody's particularly if it's governmental in nature, mm. the government. Obviated. I mean, no wonder people have trouble electing politicians who present a model that people are supposed to agree with, yes. uh, let alone understand. So okay. here's the thing. If you're, if you're voting for a politician and you don't have understandable financial documents that show you the sources and uses of the cash flows and credit of what that politician is talking about, then you're not having a conversation. You're having an entertainment. Okay, but let's take a practical example. Okay. Say a chap like Bernie, when he says, hey, we're fed up with uh, this looting and now it's time for the companies to pay their fair share. Uh, and then the others say, no, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. But then you see that they funnel billions into the military. That's just wasted. Okay, so let me let me be tough on Bernie. Yeah, yeah, but let me just make this point. Then, oh, then I'm, okay. I'm saying even if his system wouldn't work, then it doesn't matter anyway because the economy is rigged. So basically what he's just saying is let's take some of their money and force it back into us because it's rigged anyway. Right. It's just a loot anyway. You see what I mean? Yeah. Then that actually becomes plausible. So now you can explain to me why not. Okay. <laughs> well, because what Bernie's saying is uh, vote for me and then I'll try and get it done. Yeah. But the reality is the way you get it done is is not by changing who's the president or who's the congressman. The way you get it done is by shifting the money right away all the time now under your power and control. Hmm. So if I were to write a list, and I've written many, of all the things you need to do to make that happen, Bernie didn't give you that list. He just said, vote for me. He may not even understand how that works. Yes, he does. Bernie understands. Bernie understands many of the things we discussed. you can do, but but Bernie doesn't want to get shot. So, hmm. Do you think Donald Trump knew? I, I think he was actually just naive. Well, and that I, he's starting to understand now. Well, I think Trump knew a lot more than most people. So I think he was pretty knowledgeable. Most billionaires are, particularly if they ran casinos hmm. and reality TV shows. Why did the intelligence agencies want casinos on the East Coast? Hmm. I mean, the casino industry got developed, I believe, initially out in Nevada so they could launder money for Area 51. Right, right. Good point. Okay, so... So, and if you look at the kind of technology that casino, there's a great interview it's, uh, or book review up at Solari on a great book by an MIT professor on the technology used in the gambling industry to cause people to get addicted to gambling. Mm. So if you, if you look at, and reality TV show, of course, you know, thrive on on uh, entrainment technology and subliminal programming. So whether it's the, you know, addiction-creating mind-control technologies that casinos or reality TV shows use or, you know, what casinos were really created to do. Mm. Remember, a lot of that money gets laundered into big real estate developments. So, mm. And Trump is also involved in that. Right. So I think Trump is not a naive person. I think he knew a lot. And he also understood the limits of what the general population would go along with from the birther or some of the other things I 
he's done. Mm. So I think he was pretty knowledgeable. Did he know everything? No. Mm. So he's clearly been learning since he got there. But the other thing yeah. he's learned is the extent to which the American people want him to fix it and make sure it all works without having to be inconvenienced or take risk on their own. But you think, like, now that he's the president, and I've discussed this with others too, um, you know, how much are they informed? Do you think he has any inkling of where all the money is going? Do you think he knows that they are building spacecrafts in Antarctica or mining the moon and stuff like that? Is he that much in the know? Uh, I don't know how much he knows. He clearly knows a lot more than when he when he was elected. But I don't know how much he knows or how much he's just being carried and sticked into going along with different things. So I don't know how much he knows. Now, obviously, you don't know. But I'm thinking if he has an understanding of money, he must ask himself, where are all these trillions going? Ah. And then he can find out because he's the president. He's not just a politician. And if he, if they say to him, this is beyond your paid degree, then at least he knows that. Well, I would say this. If he took Mattis, Tillerson, Cohn, Mnuchin, you know, and a few others into a Faraday cage and they had an honest conversation, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they would, if they don't know everything, they would figure it out within a weekend. So, right, right. Hello? Yeah, so I, I would say that they're close. Yeah, you were cracking up there for a moment. Oh, really? Maybe that means you were right. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, we've had a few programs with some people on the whereabouts of the, should say, the, the post-Nazi network. Uh-huh. Um, Bormann's uh, exile Nazi state, you know? Okay. You heard about that? Yeah. Yeah. And every single time, and we had a lot of guests on a lot of different topics, but every time we're tracking down this path, something <laughs> happens. Yep. I mean, uh, people like we had Carter Heydrich on, bam, all the power in his neighborhood went off. With Joseph, it happens often, so that's, that goes without saying. Yep. Uh, we had uh, the uh, investigative journalist who lives in Argentina, who's the world foremost expert on Odessa and Martin Bormann, and her line went dead exactly at the moment we had appointed, and she got a line back exactly at the moment where we were supposed to be done. Yep, yep. <laughs> and now today with you, we talk about related matters. I would not be surprised if you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we got it covered then, Catherine. Okay. Uh, just a, a question about wars, because you're saying all the time that they are deliberately... This is a system where they deliberately count on ruining not just people, actually, but all life. Yeah. But you think the wars, one of the points of the wars, of course, at the one hand, they have to make an excuse for where all the money in military is going, right? If they, right. it's a really bigger war or at least a bigger military operation going on, then they need a cover operation. And what's better than the petty wars on poor countries on earth? So that's one thing. And of course, they need to keep keep the military industrial companies earn money and, and have those wheels going. Yeah. But all this unnecessary pain and suffering, could that be just to train? I'm thinking at the one hand, they need to train soldiers 
so they can pick elite soldiers for the, like we know the Gary McKinnon, the hacker, he discovered there were air fleets of soldiers and right. stuff. Right. But on the other hand, they also need to desensitize uh, people to, because if they're going to put them <laughs> into basically UFOs, well, you see what I mean? Yeah, it's the most powerful person is someone who can maintain an independent and clean field who is coherent. So clean, clear, coherent people are hard to control. Mm. There's no doubt that war and chaos keep people in a state of incoherence yeah. and make yeah. it much easier for you to control and manipulate their fields and, and to basically create the field. And you want the field to resonate with your machines as opposed to with life. Yeah. So, Good you know, point. right. So that's part of it. I mean, the, another question is, and I don't know the answer are we looking at, at psychic harvesting? In other right. words, um, are we trying to sort of psychically harvest the human race? And so inflicting pain brings, you know, you've certainly seen, I've seen leaders who literally they need to destroy somebody on a regular schedule. It's like they're fixed. Yeah. It gives them a rush. It gives them a thrill. No. There, let me just tell you before we close uh, one of my favorite stories from Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. It's up on my website. Uh, you can find it by doing a search for a commentary called Karma Means You Don't Get Away With Anything. Mm. Um, and when Jung, <laughs> Very good Jung, <laughs> Jung was in private practice and he, he had a woman come to see him who was dressed in a very aristocratic mode. Mm -hmm. And she said to him, I'm not going to give you my name because I'm only going to come once. I have a belief that if I tell you my story, I can somehow clear it. So I'm going to try and clear this energetically by telling you my story and then I'm never coming again. So here was her story as a, as she was from a very wealthy aristocratic background. And uh, as a young woman, she had fallen in love with her best friend's husband and she couldn't reconcile the tension. So given that uh, she'd gone to medical school, uh, given her knowledge of medicine, she was able to kill her best friend and get away with it. Hmm. And shortly thereafter, she married her best friend's husband and uh, shortly thereafter got pregnant. He died before the baby was born. Hmm. So she lost him. And uh, from the time the baby was born on, she said the child just hated her and had run off at a very young age, and she had no idea where she was. She had been a very accomplished horsewoman, but she said the horses always bucked, and she had to give up riding. She had had wolfhounds that she loved, and they had died right away, and she literally had become isolated from society. And she said wherever she was, the birds would stop singing. She said the birds knew. Wow. This is our problem globally. Hmm. There are no secrets in the field. You know, we all know at some level. Yeah. Uh, certainly we know what we've seen and done, and we know what, you know, and I don't care how many memory wipes you have and how much entrainment you ingest, we all know. Mm. And that's why I have a great article up at Solari called Coming Clean. What we can each do is we can each come clean mm. and then live clean and as more and more of us do, that's where the life will gather and grow. Maybe this is why spirituality is such a threat too for the powers that be. One would think it's not a threat because it doesn't interfere in politics and economics, but 
It does because it is it is the power. It is consciousness. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. Yeah. On this planet, and uh, we have to win at that level. Yeah. There's no way you can do anything economically until you deal with the governance system, and there's no way you can deal with the governance system until you deal with the spiritual governance of the governance system and the spiritual powers. So we're locked in an interdimensional war with interdimensional phenomena. Mm. So we we have got to shift our consciousness. And that's why, you know, it's really interesting. I don't know if you saw this, but the Macron, the candidate for president in France, mm-hmm. said in February, France has no culture. And he was trying to describe the fact that there are many cultures in France and we need to respect all of them. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, if you look at France's economy, France's economy is generated by France's culture, whether it's the fashion or the vineyards mm-hmm. or the fact that 100 million people go to visit France every year or the art, you know, et cetera. So France's business, its industry is culture mm-hmm. and it's what the world most knows France for and its brand. You destroy that. You've got nothing. You've got no economy. No. So I did a little commentary and I said, send that guy back to Rothschild. He needs to learn how the economy works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because France is Rothschild's uh, backyard, so yeah. Well, you know, the world is Rothschild's backyard, yeah, but yeah. but John Lachlan gave an interview and said, this is madness. If there is any country in the world known for its culture and the distinction of its culture, it's France. Mm. And that is what we're what we're first and foremost fighting for. It's a spiritual warfare and it's a cultural war, and they are at the heart of where we gather our power. Mm. So are we going to have a human culture or not? And only if we choose a human culture will we gather the power we need to really take this in the kind of direction it needs to go. Good point. We're trapped between Barbary at our gates in one way. And I'm created by the chaos. Uh, I'm not one of these who, who bash everything Middle Eastern. I know there was and there's still remnants of advanced culture even there, but it's crushed by the barbary. Yeah. And then they flood the mere migrants. So we're trapped between that backwardness and this transhumanism thing, this futuristic, right. ice cold, crazy. So it's like a two-front war against culture if you look at it from this right. perspective. But right. we go so deep now that this will take another hour or two. So I, <laughs> I, I guess we'll schedule that for another talk, Catherine. <laughs> but well, what a delight it's been to talk to you. It has. But before we let you go completely, I just want to steer you people to your stuff. Uh, you've been mentioning your website many times. But when I've been there, it seems to me that it's close. So you need membership, right, to access all this stuff? Uh, actually, we have a tremendous amount that's public. There okay. is a this, yeah. So most of our weekly interviews are subscription only. We don't take advertisement. We don't take donations. So we're entirely supported by. You don't even take donations. Wow. Okay. No. Uh, well, if somebody sends us one, we'll. But usually, <laughs> what we uh, the only donations we take, we're doing a crowdfunding for Dr. Farrell's uh, new virtual pipe organ. Uh, I've heard about that. Which yeah. has been a smashing success. Really? Smashing. But is it, yeah, is it financed we, now? Uh, we, it's done in three phases, and the first two phases are 33000 and we have financed – or wait, are 29000 Wait, let me check. Is it let that expensive? Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is a big organ. Now, the pipes are virtual, but 
um, they're quite expensive. You know, you have uh, lap, you have laptops, and you have all sorts of software and mm. and digital stuff. Have you checked that he has room for this uh, oh, gigantic yeah, yeah, yeah. monster? Okay. I've checked the living room and I've pasted it all out. And for, yeah, this if you look at the planning that's come gone into doing this, it's been quite astonishing. You know, we have a whole website cool. with all sorts of audios and videos and discussion, yeah. and the the planning was enormous. So. I'm just looking at the budget. Okay, so phase one, we finished funding um, in uh, several months ago, and that was at eighteen and a half thousand. And then phase two is ten thousand, and we just finished that. So hmm. we now are basically at approximately twenty nine thousand, and we have another four and a half thousand to go. The total budget is going to be thirty three. 31. And then if you look at the two sponsors, Solari's one of the sponsors, we financed uh, another, say, five or $6,000. So all told, the whole project's probably going to end up costing about 40000 but it's a huge success. Wow, and, you can buy a house for that. A small <laughs> one or a car. Right, but you can also buy, buy one of the world's finest pipe organ virtual pipe organs there's a little picture on the website you can see it but i you know it's very interesting because joseph is very big on culture yeah. and the importance of culture and so he he started to try and educate he really got me to see this because you know my beat is money and that's what i think about but money plays on the platform of culture and so as soon as he convinced me okay we have to do what we can do to preserve western civilization being an investment banker, the first thing I said was, well, what, what, what's my action? What do I do? And I kept pestering him, how about this? How about that? What do I do? I need to make a contribution. And then I was sitting with him in his uh, kitchen one day. On I just stopped by visiting as I drove across the country. And he, I started talking to him about why he didn't play the organ. Because he, whenever he talks about organs and playing the organ, he just gets... He himself. Yeah. He gets ecstatically happy. He mm. just, he just, you know, he looks like he is channeling Bach. <laughs> <laughs> Which and, he did in one of his compositions. We used it in one of our uh, yeah, movies. He, he just turns into a whole, and I said, well, you've got to play. Mm. And then, he, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, how much would it cost to buy a an organ? And he said, oh, it's prohibitively expensive. And I said, well, what if we crowdfunded one? And what happened was uh, he's got a wonderful ally named Chuck. Chuck McCorkle who agreed to do this with me because it's a tremendous amount of work to get it all designed out and figured out and ordered and done. So Chuck So it's going to be built from the ground up. Oh yeah, no, it's being built now. In fact, we're hoping wow. to get pictures next week. But here's what happened. So it was during the election, and of course, many of us, Joseph and I, basically thought if the Clintons won, it was gonna, you know, our life expectancy in the United States was maybe a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was a very depressing time. And to see the debasement of the culture was just very sad. And anyway, so we started to do this in L. It was amazing, the response from all the different members of his website and, and my subscribers. But it was as though everybody just wanted something positive to be part of. Yeah, yeah. And wow, it just, you know, I, I keep saying to Joseph, you know, Bach wants to channel compositions or something because there is definitely – interdimensional support for you to have a pipe organ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Providence is, is obviously giving wins in the sales here. You hear this, people, if you didn't know, there is this crowdfunding and you can access that through your site, you say? 
Yeah, and you can learn a huge amount. If you go to solari.com, there's a link on the left to the... Solari.com. S is in Sam, O-L-A-R-I.com. Okay, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and over on the left, there's a little uh, commentary called Get a Taste of the Solari Report. And if you click on it, it will give you links to lots of the free stuff and tell you all the free stuff we have. And uh, so it gives you a way to try everything without having to pay any money. Have you published any books? Uh, I published Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits online. Mm. Um, and it's online. Every time we try to publish it, we get interfered with or threatened. So the, the last time I tried to publish it, they threatened my family. And so I backed off. Jeez. Um, so I figure at some point after everybody has died off, I'll, I'll publish it. In fact, I'll probably make a cha- uh, run at publishing it again this year. But we're, S- we're self-publish. But, but it's yeah. available online, you say, as an ebook. Uh, no, it's just available as a website. So it's all there. You can print it out if you want. Okay. I also published a book called um, uh, Gifting to the Children We Love. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's available, but it's also available for free on the website. So both of the books are available for free. And every year we publish a prayer book. Uh, it's a cycle of 30 days of daily prayers. And that's also available for free. For some reason, the books. Okay. Now, our wrap-up gets published in hard copy, and it's the equivalent of four books a year, especially the annual wrap-up. You're talking about your articles, right? Uh, no, the, the, on the Soleri Report, the Soleri Report organizes around quarterly wrap-ups, okay. where we basically give a summary of that quarter news in the financial markets and politically, and we also dive into one deep theme. Oh, right. And uh, yeah. they... We, also publish them in hard copy and they're like little books they're fabulous yeah cool yeah the latest one is a report card on the first 70 days of trump and it is the single but if you want to look at what happened without the shrieking (laughs) and yelling and and the russia hysteria yeah it's very interesting because i'll send you a copy if you give me a mailing address without opening a a new hour discussion here it seems to me it's a looting raid going on right now what do you think uh well here's my my big concern Mm. is that it turns into a giant looting raid. But we'll see. We'll see. So we'll see. Yeah. Maybe next time I have you back, we will know. <laughs> it's what I call piratization. Okay. Interesting. Okay. But it's so brilliant that you actually managed to dumb this down so that I now think I understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and that that should translate to the I listener. I didn't dumb it down. I just didn't complexify it up exactly. in a brain-damaged way. Yes, good point. So, right. So stop. Let us not insult clear thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I will tell you something. I've said this many times this year. If you give me somebody in the heartland who's had to function in a market economy for the last 30 years, who's got an IQ of 103, mm-hmm. okay? That's not asking too much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you give me somebody in Silicon Valley or Wall Street who's got an IQ of 150 but who's been dealing with massive government subsidy and doesn't know that, I will tell you that that 103 person is smarter than the 150 person. Yeah. But then, of course, there's also something called EQ and SQ. Right. And usually the guys with high IQ are lower on those things. So I I would never trust someone who are distant to life. Right. Streetwise, never underestimate that, right? Right. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Great. 
Well, it, it's been a dark thing we've been digging in, deep, dark and depressing, but I'm glad we ended on a more positive, hopeful note here. Well, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, a pastor I once had who mm. said, you can have my car, you can have my house, you can have my man, but you cannot have my joy. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> Good so, point. I guess that sums up your own uh, adventure through this. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's the hum- humanity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm totally on board. Yeah. Thanks a lot for, for coming on, Catherine. Such a, a wonderful. Al, it was a great pleasure. What a great chance it was for me to discuss these things with you, and we should do it again. We should. So much clear clearance we get from this. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Have, Have a, a wonderful, wonderful day, day okay? okay? Yeah, yeah. A wonderful oh, no, night. Go, no, you're, you're going to sleep. <laughs> go Eventually, to, I will. Get some yes. Sleep. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> yes, yes, excellent, Catherine. Been uh, jolly good uh, talking with you. Have a good, Have a good one. one. Get, Get some, some sleep. sleep. Yes. yes. Bye. 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 And thank you for listening to Forum Borealis. If you like our shows, we could need your support if you both like and share them on social media and YouTube. That will help increase our audience. Another effective effort is to send to someone you know one of our shows that you know they will like. Word of mouth is our primary way of impact, so make sure your recommendations are actually noticed. To those dear patrons of ours who sponsor the shows so that we get our expenses covered, remember that you can sign up at our website to get access to our forum, bonus stuff, and all shows as mp3 files months before they are released to the public. Even if you only donate a single dollar one time only, it opens the door, and you're welcome to enter. The program today should be listened to in line with the rest of our series on the breakaway civilization. Mrs. Fitz gives us the economical context to the covert projects of our planet's elites so we can understand how the advanced technology is financed and maintained. We're still in a feudal system, only a high-tech version, and most of the pain and suffering taking place at our planet today is completely unnecessary and artificial. We could have a prosperous world, but people are herded like sheep and manipulated like robots and are distracted by fighting and blaming each other, rather than waking up and recognizing that the 0.1 presenters are running this horror show, not to our benefit. We shall get back to so many aspects of this in future programs, notwithstanding those we've already launched, that you will find at our website or in the playlist at our YouTube channel. Before parting, I want to share a few quotes with you. Thomas Jefferson said, Never spend your money before you have it. Andrew Jackson said, 
When you get in debt, you become a slave. Benjamin Franklin said, Live within your means, never be in debt. The second voice is lying, the first is running in debt. A proverb says, Running into debt isn't so bad, it's running into creditors that hurts. And even the biblical proverbs say, The borrower is servant to the lender. And... Here we are, collectively enslaved by a debt economy, forced to fight each other, to keep head above water, with a certain amount of us bound to rot at the bottom, a few to be the prostituted servants of the elite, and the many to be trapped in the rat race, like lemmings on a treadmill. If this doesn't make you system critical, you are a lost course. I say, to hell with the current system. Stop fighting an imagined enemy at the other side of the artificial axis of left hand, right hand. And let's hit upwards as a unified fist. Otherwise you're playing right into their divide and conquer strategy. That's working so well for them. Because that's the real economy. Like a pyramid. Bottom up, not left right. We, the masses, against the oligarchs and their handyman. Get into your head that it's all about authoritarianism and centralism versus liberty and autonomy. Never ever support anything stanching of the former and always back anything of the latter, no matter if it's presented in a left or right package. Just don't care about labels and colors. See behind. Where is the force pushing? In what direction? I could keep this rant going, but that's it for now. Your dissident host has been Al. Thanks to my team and our patrons. That's you. Be seeing you. Number one.